Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack every single number behind each headline. My name is Alex and I am joined today by Natasha. Hello, Natasha. Hello, hello. How are you? I am good, but I am the bearer of bad news because this no. will be the last official hosting show in which we have Mr. Crichton with us. Danny, say hello and tell everyone why you're abandoning us. Well, hello and goodbye. Well, my duties are shifting thanks to the macroeconomics of the economy. Which God is kind of what it. we're talking about today. But let's unpack that a little bit, Danny. What macroeconomic factors in particular are driving you away from our lovely little perch here at TechCrunch? Well, you know, when you talk about the numbers behind the headlines, let's just say that the headline numbers are really effing big. Yes. I've never seen anything like this. We talk about venture capital all the time. I think for a deep dive episode, particularly as I'm thinking more and more about VC these days, hey, let yo. me tell you, these numbers have skyrocketed. Yeah. Essentially, what we're hearing, looking through all the Q3 data, is that the venture capital world is continuing it's boom. And we're seeing record numbers, superlative numbers, if you will, around the world, different geographies, different states, different locations. And it's kind of a drumbeat of excess. And so much so to the point that this morning I wrote a piece with Anna and our editor, Annie, said, I'm getting kind of tired of these VC stories because they're all kind of the same. <laughs> and I'm like, it's not my fault that all the numbers point in one direction. <laughs> like, I didn't do it. But Natasha, why don't you run us through a couple of the highlights? Yeah, I think everyone's kind of numb to them at this point, but I'll do it just so we have it on the record. Recent data shows that there's been $158 billion in total funding this year, which is up 105% versus last year. There's been 409 deals, over $100 million, another record high. And this is the craziest one. There's 848 total unicorns in the world these days, with just 127 of those added in Q3. So it's no longer very unicorn-like to become a unicorn. No, not at all. In fact, it's, <laughs> nothing is more standard. And that data is all via the CB Insights Q3 report. CB Insights, the NVCA, Crunchbase News, everyone kind of does these lovely digests for us. And uh, another data point that really stuck in my eyes, Danny, was that there were $72 billion raised in the US by startups so far this year, which is about half of the world's venture capital dollars. The half seemed a little higher than I expected, frankly. I actually thought it was pretty good because it used to be much higher proportion than that. So Asia funding has actually jumped 95% with particularly China and India both roaring. And that leads to sort of the headline piece that we heard this morning that Bloomberg is reporting that Tiger Global, one of the largest private equity managers, and we say private equity, that includes VC, has closed a, a first close of their new 15th fund of $8.8 .8 billion dollars. Wow. wow. And they have to get the sense of how skyrocketing these numbers are. Tiger Global had $28 billion under management in 2018, according to Bloomberg. It is now at $95 billion. So $28 to $95 billion in about two and a half, three years. I mean, it's just so much money that I just kind of blink at it. It's like when Apple stock goes down by a percent and they lose like $100 billion in market cap. And I'm like, oh, no. You know, it just you begin <laughs> to kind of lose. I, I lose my ability to hold on to the numbers in rational terms. Well, and there's more and more of these milestones. You obviously did a shot that I wasn't a part of because I was drinking coffee. But Tesla crossed the trillion dollar barrier. Yes, it Just did. Uh, two days ago. Yes, it did. For the first time ever. So we now have multiple, we're up to what, five or six companies up in the trillion dollar category well, in the Facebook tech industry? Facebook has, has fallen down the ladder a little bit. They're worth, uh, you know, something pathetic, like $930 billion, you know, oh. just, just some, yeah. Just, just useless. Like, right Might as well just bankrupt the company and shut it down. Stick a fork in it, Zuck. It's over. Um, <laughs> no, the point is, but Denny's right. There are an increasing number of companies reaching the $1 trillion mark. And if you want to kind of put in perspective how fast our own viewpoints have changed, recall when Apple first crossed the trillion dollar mark. Everyone was freaking out and watching this and like tracking the ticker symbol, you know? And then there's now a half dozen of these companies. It's, it's gone from being singular 
to common and I'm sure in, you know, five years from now, it's going to be boring. I think for so long, I've looked at these mega funds being raised as further proof that VC is not going anywhere. But then this morning, Sequoia announced a new strategy around a fund which will go from inception to IPO. Actually, they're changing the way that they think about expiration dates on investments and holding investments past their public debut. And to me, that was officially the sign in a way that venture realized it has to change a little bit and all the money that's there right now isn't going to be invested the way it has been historically. Yeah, this was a great scoop from Axios's Dan Premack. There was a lot to unpack there, though. So it looks like Sequoia is going to update a lot to try to make things easier for limited partners to invest in its fund. So it's creating something called, quote, the Sequoia Fund. <laughs> Iconic of With them. an emphasis on the. Yes. Uh, you know it's important because of the the. Um, but what they're going to do is the Sequoia Fund is going to be an open-ended fund. So if you're familiar with the mutual fund world, open-ended funds allow limited partners to kind of come in, come out in sort of metered periods of time. And it sounds like from Premac, there's going to be an annual kind of exercise of whether an LP wants to redeem their money and take money out of the fund or put more money in. And then all of their funds at Sequoia are going to be subsidiary sub-funds of the Sequoia Fund. The only caveat to that that I throw in there is that the India and China vehicles will remain distinct. And this makes some sense because those were operated, it seemed a little bit independently. And of course, in the case of China, you probably can't have the same operating structure and include a China fund, given that that country is famously open for business and uh, (laughs) not divisive at all. I asked a VC for what they thought about the news because I'm sure everyone has a take on it. And they actually made a really interesting point. They were saying that one of the key problems that venture capitalists have to solve right now is like when their companies go public, they have to distribute back to their LPs in a time frame that's laid out. But the incentives are kind of misaligned because Sequoia knows the real value of the company. They've sat on the board, they know the ecosystem, and they know that if the LPs keep their shares post going public, they'll probably make more money. They can't share that info though because of insider trading. So now this VC basically argued that the power goes back into Sequoia's hands on when to give that money back to LPs. I think this is really interesting because this has been a huge debate for years in venture firms, which is, you know, how immediately do you distribute shares and get out? You know, lockup periods are generally six months post an IPO. Some firms have a policy of immediately selling. And there are times when that actually has been very lucrative because (laughs) the market crashes or whatever the case may be, you could be very smart. On the flip side, with companies like Shopify most recently and others, there have been so much gains on the public markets that actually holding even for years, well past the time of the IPO and getting basically getting credit for all that additional gain is a huge deal. So I think this gives flexibility it allows companies to IPO faster because that means Sequoia, let's say you IPO in year five instead of 14. Your venture investors could actually continue to back you for another 10 years and aren't kind of timing the clock, so to speak. But what's complicated to me, and I don't think a lot of folks have really thought about this, is what does it mean to be an early stage investor? And then you have multiple public company boards. I find that very uncomfortable. And I, I find it very interesting that the industry is moving towards this, like everyone does every stage model as opposed to specializing in individual stages and then handing the investment off to someone else who specializes in growth or public or whatever the case may be. Say more about that. What feels complicated to you about the fact that the people would exist in all those different ways? I think they're very different skill sets. I mean, being a board member of a very early stage company's product market fit, getting your first customers, growing, first couple of hires, you know, getting in place the management team. Growth is about upgrading a lot of that management if things aren't working out, scaling up systems, making sure you're getting prepped for an IPO, Sarbanes-Oxley, accounting, CFO, finance. And then when you're public, you have a whole nother set of criteria, right? Managing everything from public policy to M&A and corporate development, on and on and on. And so it's really hard to believe that one person can do all 
all the above and all these different contexts well. Yeah. Or even medium good, not even just well. I mean, lower the bar a little bit there, Danny. I don't think any single person can do those even passably across all the stages. But one thing we're seeing here is that a lot of funds are going this direction, becoming larger, becoming more blob-like, becoming a registered investment advisor, whatever. And then on the other hand, we're seeing some funds stay relatively small. And Hunter Walk talked about this a little bit. He said, we're seeing kind of a bifurcation, that we're seeing funds stay very small and chase kind of like standard venture level returns, like maybe 5x gross. And then we're seeing much larger funds come together. And because they have so much capital, they can kind of pursue a lower return model, maybe two, two and a half x, which is quite a different investment approach, Danny. Does that bifurcation solve some of your problems? that you're discussing? Or are you more thinking on an intra-firm basis? I mean, the pattern over the last five years has been there's a, a group of VCs and I would put maybe 10 to 15 firms in that bucket Name that want to be asset managers, <laughs> right? So that would be Andreessen, <laughs> Sequoia, uh, General Catalyst, Lightspeed, on and on and on. And they want to get to the largest AUM possible, right? They want to have as much assets as possible. They don't care multi-stage, multi-geo, multi-strat, as many funds as possible. As we've joked on the show, Andreessen has funds. They don't even have people to run. Yes. So they have money on the board. Someone somewhere should invest this hundred million in something. Gold. But so, but for every so so that's one model. And yeah. and look, some of those folks want to go public. That has been like widely rumored. They're getting set up to go public, similar to what's happened in private equity. It was interesting in the Premax story on Sequoia that Sequoia said explicitly that they were not looking to go public. And I actually sort of believe them. There's a lot of requirements that come with that, even though there's a lot of financial and remuneration for the partners there. I think what's tricky, though, is that as you start to do multi-stage and you're just an asset allocator, how do you build relationships with the founders to get into the right companies? It's getting very competitive. It's commodity capital. It's tens of billions of dollars. And everyone has the same term sheets. And that's sort of the argument for the specialization. Yeah. But one thing you could do, just thinking out loud, is you could have inside of these mega funds, partners that have different focuses. So you could essentially, if you back someone at seed, you could have a seed partner come on and then you could swap out your board member, perhaps, later on when the company's more at a growth stage and then swap it out again when they are closer to going public. And so you could essentially have one bucket of money and different human capital attached to it. Yes, that sounds complicated. No, it may not work very well, but at least it would solve some of your concerns. I think. I think that's the hope. The problem is I think partners tend to carry along their companies all the way through. So there's like the ideal, which is board partners, hey, you know, now the company needs to be restructured. Let's get a restructuring specialist board partner onto the board to go do that. That's not the pattern we're seeing. Okay, I, so I, I actually never see board members drop off. Yeah. A question that I have about this yeah. is what the minimum AUM is to become one of these larger mega funds. Like Danny, is it a billion in capital under management? Is it 10 billion? Like when do you become sufficiently large that you should pursue something more like this? I think you have to get large enough that the management fees cover the platform expenses that you're looking to do in the firm, right? So we, we've talked about Andreessen now has what, 300 employees, 200 employees, <laughs> some, crazy like some that, hundreds yeah. of employees, right? Huge salary base that requires a lot of AUM to get the management fees to cover all those salaries. And same with Tiger Global and some of the others who are spending millions and millions of dollars on consultants to do all the due diligence for all these deals. So you have to have the economic model that ultimately makes sense from a profitability standpoint. You actually have to pay your bill, so to speak. And that's why there's sort of a valley of death in VC, I think, yes. which is if you're going to be at that scale doing 100 deals a year, massive checks, everything has to be due diligence, you need hundreds of folks you got to have enough money to go do that. You have to have enough management fees to cover the bills. It's why I find the solo GP movement to feel so different of an asset class of a, I guess using them in the same sentence feels so irresponsible sometimes, like the Tiger Globals and the Turner Novaks of the world are just doing two completely different investment <laughs> yeah. games. When I when I talked to Turner, he was saying like a lot of what he's doing is targeting lower ownership between 0.2% to 3%. I remember talking to a VC fund that had the same assets under management <laughs> who wants to lead checks and get 15 to 20%. 
of ownership between checks. So it's fundamentally different yeah. on how VC used to look and now how VC is looking with emerging so, funding. So, the so the other contrast be, between Tiger Global and Turner Novak is that Tiger Global doesn't talk at all and Turner Novak won't shut the f- up. <laughs> We love Turner about about, about his zero point two percent interest stakes. Um, well, I mean, this is this is the new model, right? Which is valuations are very expensive. Yes, if you don't have a huge fund, this is the other challenge: is you just can't buy ownership. Right. If, if a company is worth a hundred million dollars at a seed, and you have a half million dollar check to put in, you own zero point five percent of the company. It's just math. The problem is, is like long term. If you have no ownership, like how do you actually help a company? Like if you're Turner and you own 0.5% of a company, like your sweat equity is not worth a lot to go and help that company succeed. You own one two hundredth of a company. Like what what value? 99.5% of it is captured by someone else. And I think that was the old model. And one of the reasons folks always talk about ownership is like when you own 20 or 30% of a company, you have a huge incentive to turn it around. You're capturing most of the work that you're putting into a business. And so the bet here, I think, is that companies are self-sufficient. They're going to grow on their own. They have the money to go do that. I'm not saying I disagree with that, but your VCs have no financial incentive to actually help. I think the argument for why I'm seeing multiple emerging VCs targeting lower ownership than the way things used to look is because of the tigers of the world. Like how else are they going to win cap table positions? And then over time, they're going to kind of prove their value in that way. Like it feels like a very natural symptom of founders having more power, more capital options, and then needing to find room for value-added VCs to come onto their cap tables. Like maybe you can't get your help from Tiger on this very specific issue, but you can probably get it from Turner because he probably has more, I guess, I don't know. I would say he has probably has more vested interest in helping a company in his niche skill set than a Tiger who's doing a deal every hour. Is Turner doing a focused strategy? In terms of like where he's investing? Right. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, the answer, I'm, I'm being rhetorical. The answer is he's spraying and praying pretty heavily. Like most of the folks who are influencers, they want to be touching a lot of different projects. I think this is one of the big questions, and this is what is truly changing in the industry, is this used to be a specialist game. It used to be the VCs did a deal a year, maybe two tops, and you put a lot of time to ensure those companies succeeded, that they had a lot of focus, mentorship. They were basically built for success. And we've moved to the network model of capital, which is fine. That's what we've talked about the last five years. I've written stories, Natasha, Alex, you've written stories on the network model of capital. Everyone has a little bit in the pile of every cap table, but no one has an incentive to actually really help any individual company. And this was the critique with party rounds back in 2010, 2011. I mean, this was the thing. No one's going to be there to help you. Who are you going to call late at night when you're having the dark moment of the soul and you're worried about your business model? Well, no one. I mean, maybe you can just tweet about it. <laughs> Look, I mean, that's how we all <laughs> the, get through well, things in 2021. On TikTok. <laughs> um, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm just like very optimistic still somehow two years after podcasting with Danny Crayon. But I feel well, like I, giving a call to someone who looks like you and is more relatable than a institutional venture capital partner feels like that's more of like an option for founders these days. Last week, we talked about Vibe Capital. Yes. With yes. more options in the market, you may find an investor that can speak your language before I was five white guys. I'm happy about that. That feels more like there's a value that's going to be translated. Yeah. I'll, I'll take that. And like, to be clear, we're, we're just beating up on Turner because I brought him up or whatever. But like, and there's a lot of solo GPs out there, a lot of solo funds, a lot of rolling funds. So there's going to be a variety of people that are more engaged and less engaged. But generally speaking, lower ownership, lower engagement, higher ownership, higher engagement. And that's just economics, I think. And on the subject of economics, I want to turn our conversation a little bit towards scale because we talked at the top of the show about how much money is flowing in to startups around the world all-time records domestically and in many other countries. And the question becomes, can the market support this long-term? Are we generating too much 
private capital that won't translate to public valuations. And Danny, I want to start with you because you've actually done the most kind of back and forth between Venture and TC. Do you think, and that's not a diss, that's just a compliment actually. Do you think that there is too much money flowing into startups today and that we are overheated or is enough value being created that it all kind of adds up? Well, it depends who's asking, right? If you're a founder, if you're a scientist, if you're someone who believes in the progress of society, it's great that hundreds of billions of dollars is just dumping on companies left and right. Yes. I don't know if I'm an LP, I'm happy with the result, but I'm thrilled the founders own more percentage of their company, that more projects are getting funded, that more diverse founders are getting funded, that people are doing stuff in ESG. I mean, who would have thought that climate change would get money? But because there's nowhere else to park your cash... (laughs) Suddenly, all these things like nuclear power become really exciting for folks. So I think it's great societally. I think one of the big challenges, you've seen the debates on Twitter, and I I certainly feel it with a lot of the conversations I do with VCs, is there is starting to become a very concerning mismatch between the amount of dollars flowing into the industry and the exit valuations, because the exits are not adding up to where the numbers of dollars are flowing into the industry. We're talking about tens and tens and tens of billions of dollars of VC invested there's still risk. I feel like this is back to SoftBank Vision Fund back when we were doing this in 2019, That's where it's fun. like, there's still a risk even at late stages that companies fail or just don't produce any returns. One of the debates, you, you mentioned Hunter Walk, who said, well, you're going to have a 3x fund with these deals. That still assumes that several companies are having power law distribution returns. And I think what's happening is you're starting to see valuations with the venture side also hitting power law distribution returns, right? We just looked at, what was it, Chime? Just raised tens of billions of dollars. Now it's theoretically going IPO in, what, 35 to 40 billion, if I'm remembering numbers. I was not prepped for this. I'm pulling something very much (laughs) out of the deep recesses of my... This is what happens when you read 500 articles a week. But nonetheless... So there will be winners, but I think the the returns on your winners, are they going to compensate for your losses? And I think that's the big question coming up here. And my fear is that people are looking at 2010 to 2012 return profiles. I mean, the vintage years for 2008 to 2012 are amazing. In some ways, if you remember the Kaufman report about how terrible VC is, like (laughs) Kaufman was dreadfully wrong, like completely MFing wrong, like stridently, incredibly wrong. But they could be right next decade because the valuations are so high that it now has flipped. And just to kind of put this in perspective, the way that I think about the issue that Danny's talking about, and I've been writing about this since 2016. So I've been also very wrong for a long period of time, because as the old saying goes, the market can stay rational longer than you can stay solvent. And that's why I own index funds. But the point is, there's (laughs) so many unicorns being born that the pace of new unicorn creation is far outstripping the pace (laughs) of unicorn exits. And over time, what we're seeing is a rising amount of private value locked in the private markets. And I've been like, huh, that's a big traffic jam. I wonder if it's going to get longer. And then it gets longer every year and everyone goes, that's eh, fine. And we've it's never basic- even gotten close to actually clearing the number of unicorns created via exits. Basically, unicorns are like ships piled up at the Long Beach Harbor oh my God. waiting for port access. And there's all these cranes are called investment banks that do the IPO running. And the cranes aren't busy because there's nowhere to park these things because there's nothing to get through. I, the analogy I get works. it. I get yeah, it. No, no, the analogy is medium good. I but- think... I want to circle back because this is why the Sequoia memo surprised me. The new fund. They're basically betting that their LPs are even more comfortable with waiting for liquidity for their original capital. And so basically Sequoia is saying that like the bottleneck exists and we're comfortable with it and we're going to continue investing through it. 
in fact, holding past when they even exit. So to me, it was surprising because I was like, I totally thought LPs at this point would be kind of anxious being like, we're tired of not having our money back. We want exits. Focus on that. I think Premac mentioned, I think from Roloff or others, that Sequoia was basically saying, look, that a lot of the LPs don't have active trading desks. So they don't know when to buy and sell and hold their stocks. And so therefore they're trusting Sequoia to do it for them, which I thought was interesting because that seemed to imply that the LPs backing Sequoia to not have active trading desks at a large endowment or like a pension fund. Like, I don't know who their LPs are. I assume they're blue chip, but presumably they have smart people around the table that can buy and sell and hold and trade stocks. So I actually thought it was very fascinating because traditionally the mentality is the reason you hand the stock back to LPs is that different LPs have different points of view. Some will say, I want to sell. I don't want to be a part of this. I have research that shows this. Others will say, I want to hold. Bailey Gifford. The Irish firm. Right. The Irish firm. Bailey Gifford has famously gone long on Tesla. They've owned the company almost 15, 16 years, basically almost since its founding and have been around all the time, obviously with the trillion dollar market cap have done super well. You can imagine many other people not wanting to be part of the Tesla story at some point or just wanting to get their cash and move on to something else and find new growth. What's interesting here is this life cycle approach, which is traditionally venture capital is this bucket where you're like, I want to be very early. I want this massive return. It's counter cyclical to the economy. Companies can grow in times when the economy goes bad. And now you're saying, well, I just want to hold on to these things for 20, 25 years. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I think from an LP perspective, it gets much harder to manage the buckets because now a lot of your Sequoia money, which was venture money, is now public equity money. Yeah. But I think underscoring this or kind of undergirding this entire sentiment, Denny, is optimism about the future valuations of technology-focused companies, what we call tech upstarts or startups. And I want to point out the pace change in how much value is being created. Because one thing that I think we lose track of is how many unicorns were being born throughout time. And according to the same CB Insights report, roughly in 2016, it was 10 to 14 unicorns a quarter that were being born. By 2019, it was 30s and 40s. And then in this year, it's been 112, 140, and 127 in each of the first three quarters. That's an insane amount of growth, but it's compounded by the fact that late stage valuations are going up. So if you take a look at how much these companies are worth, late stage valuations have gone from 523 million median in 2020 to 1.1 billion median in 2021 year to date through Q3. So it's not just a rapid acceleration in the number of unicorns, but like these companies are also worth more in general. And so there's an enormous explosion of value that's just locked up. And as we're seeing with companies like Rent the Runway and Sweetgreen, not every unicorn's very good. Some of them suck. (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing is like they're locked up in value, but value that they themselves probably don't have and VCs think they do. So it feels like there's going to be a, I don't know what will trigger it, but a lot of companies are going to have to catch up with themselves at some point, right? Like what are are we waiting for before we see the actual value of the business meet the actual value that VCs Well, I I think that's precisely the pin that needs to drop. I think that's what's coming. I think we see it in SaaS where the revenue multiples are very high. And I I talk about revenue multiples all the time because they have expanded. I mean, a lot of the growth isn't even on the revenue side. It is actually on the multiple side. Yes. In some cases, both. And so one of the challenges, and I was just talking about this at lunch, is as these companies grow, they're obviously going to grow slower because they get up to larger and larger scale. And so by definition, these multiples get compressed as there's less growth to be had. And so the question is, is like, how does this work when you're so peaky at IPO? You know, we're seeing multiples of 100x and at lower growth, it'll be 40x. So if you two and a half X the company, but you have slower growth, you're worth the same as what you are at debut. And that to me is the big, ooh, wishy-washy, we're going to have the the numbers have to converge at some point and the math has to work. I don't know when that's going to happen. I mean, I've been saving the solvent line for the last couple of months that the market can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. I don't know what that means when you're going long. You can't, everyone's solvent until it's, it's like, it it doesn't make any sense. 
But I do think that there's going to be a reckoning in the sense that at some point it all has to line up. I mean, you can't value something that's worth not a lot, a lot, and not be held accountable for that. And yet, Danny, here we have been for quite some time doing this. I mean, here's an example of, of how crazy the world is. Sweet Green, which is a salad chain, raised a series I. That's a fun <laughs> sentence to say Mike out loud. Mic drop, mic drop. <laughs> you know, like, like what's, what's that about? Also, GitLab raised its IPO range, price above its IPO range, and then shot up and has a revenue multiple, something like 85 or 90, if my memory serves. To be clear, that is a price earnings ratio that would have been absolutely ludicrous 10 years ago. And it's now a revenue multiple. I mean, it's an entirely different substance, but the number has stayed the same. It's yeah. crazy to me. But it appears, guys, that we are the contrarian conservatives here to some degree because everyone else seems to think this is fine. On a panel I just did, I asked every startup founder, I'm like, are your VCs telling you to slow down at all? Is there any change in direction? They're like, absolutely not. It's all spend. It's all invest. It's 100% pedal down. Okay. All right. That's the bet that's been laid. For once, I feel like the conversation of everything is booming feels like it's been furthered. So great job, you guys, because I feel like I've been really lost in understanding why and when this is happening and what's going to happen next. But hopefully this paints it in a more understandable picture. And uh, let, let's be honest. I mean, all this excitement is great for equity. We, we've smashed <laughs> all of our viewership or, you know, our listenership ratings uh, the last couple of weeks. Every record we've had of the show has been the best. I am leaving on a high. <laughs> You're leaving on literally the day, we're recording this show the day after our new all-time download record, which you weren't part of, but you were I'm on sad. the show staff for. <laughs> That's precisely why it was a record, Alex. Uh, Just Danny, wait until you see the ratings after I'm gone. In all seriousness, though, Danny, you will be super missed from the show. And if you ever want to pop back on. Yeah. Actually, can we, take, can we take one more minute just to, just to say some nice things about Danny? Because over yeah. the years, we've all kind of, you know, gently mocked one another. Danny stepped into the show when we really needed him. So many hosts ago, when Kay Clark was on, she left, which is fine. People move around. And we were kind of short on who's going to step in. And Danny not only joined the show, but he really did an amazing job. And he went for, he was going to be a temporary host. And then we just didn't let him leave for several years. Um, <laughs> but but I'm, I've always been thankful for that. And Danny, you've always been a very good sport. And uh, frankly, my man, I, you know, I'm going to miss you a lot. I'm going to miss everyone on the show. I am a writer. And so I, I have viscerally hated onstage video and audio. Yes. And yet I've been doing the show for two years. And I, I brought my... <laughs> charmless pessimism and negativity every week for listeners. And I hope to do that continually in real life for folks in person. <laughs> you're you're slowly talking around your sure. next job. It's so funny. Dude. You keep dropping <laughs> these like micro hints. Like, cause I, just to be clear, everybody, I know where Danny's going. Um, and uh, I can't tell you because I promised I wouldn't. But like, it's funny. If you listen to the show back, once you hear the news, you'll, you'll catch us a couple you'll love of little it. moats. Yeah. I, I need to include my Danny anecdote, which is when I first joined the show, I, I think I just like listened in on the recording and Danny was like connecting dots so fast that that night I literally don't know why, downloaded an ebook about the history of the Chinese government and just like tried to learn everything I could to like be like, I think I need to know about something about everything in order to be as good as this guy. I did not read that book. And I think I've found my own path. <laughs> but that was honestly how overwhelmed Danny made me feel in the best way. Like you held us to a high standard. That's amazing. Yeah, I never told any of you. I don't even remember. It was literally like Googling like ways to sound smart. <laughs> don't ask me. The, 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 the equity show is, is a loose notes doc that we just talk through. And so it can be a little intimidating when you join because it's, it's all in shorthand. It's just like a collection of data points. And then we're like, do a show. Um, we, we do script the Monday show a little bit more, but that's only because it's me Monday morning in the cold 
<laughs> struggling. Um, well, Danny, listen, let's let's wrap it up there. This was the right episode to end on, given your expertise, work history, and we'll talk more about where you're going down the road. Of course, we will have you back here and there when it makes sense, but we adore you. Godspeed. And when you come back to TC in 18 months, we'll have you back on the show. <laughs> All right. Um, That's Equity. We're back on Friday without Danny for a while. All right. Bye.